So our lives are often shaped by defining moments. Moments that are pregnant with with potential and and power and, and influence. Moments that are even maybe in the moment we don't realize how defining they are, but looking back on it, we can see how defining they are. And sometimes defining moments in our lives are very public so all can see, and other times they are very private where either one or two people see or no one does. Well, I remember in in the spring of 1996, I had a few defining moments in my own life. I I remember uh, being in a geography class in which the entire class, my sophomore year in college, somehow got the answers to the final exam in, in the geography class before the exam was, was, uh, was given. And I had a moment of decision whether or not I was going to get those answers and cheat and practically ace the exam or not. And, and, and not that I had made perfect decisions prior to that, but in that moment I made the decision that I, I, I would not cheat to get uh, a score. And I was, um, I think, one person who did not make an A on that test. But it was a defining moment because it, it put the rest of my academic career on a trajectory of which I was going to make a decision that my work would be my work. It was defining. I, I remember when I was playing baseball, and, and I've told you this, some of you the story before, but we were playing our arch rival a lot of fans in the stands. It's the last inning, top. We're up by one, two outs. All we got to do is get a guy out, and a, and a guy hits a ground ball to me at first base, and, and I let the ball go right between my legs, and two runners come around the score, and they go up by one run. And then we come into bat in the bottom of the last inning, and our first guy gets out, and our second guy gets out, and, and then I, I come up to, to the plate with a runner on, on base, and I get two strikes on me, it's 0 and 2, and I'm, 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 I'm feeling tempted to be discouraged because I, 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 I made a flub in the field that, that potentially cost the game, and I may strike out, and, and in that moment, in that moment it was defining because God gave me the ability to focus and to get a hit, and it kind of set the rest of my, my season in, in a good trajectory and the rest of my college career in a good trajectory, and And then I remember about that same time, I actually know the date, October the 14th, 1996, I remember it was a Sunday afternoon and uh, Jamie walked into my apartment and uh, she was standing um, right by the front door and I was in the middle of my living room and I told her that I loved her and that I had every intention to pursue marriage with her. Now let me tell you, that has set the trajectory for the rest of our life. That, that was, what, 22, 3, whatever years ago, and our lives have never been the same since that moment. And I want to tell you, you have had defining moments in your life. I mean, think about this. For those of you who are part of Grace Fellowship and Anniston Bible Church, in December of 2011, January, February of 2012, and you were approached about being a part of a church plant in Oxford, you had to come to a moment of decision, a decisive moment in your life, whether you were going to be a part of this. And let me tell you, has it not altered the trajectory of your life? For many of you, maybe most, you came to a point in your life where you had to make a decision for Jesus Christ and whether or not you were going to live for him 
whether you were going to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after Jesus, come hell or high water, you were going to follow after him. You had to make a decision, and in that moment, it was decisive, and it set the trajectory of your life forever. And this is what I want you to know. The most decisive moment in the history of the world we read about in John chapter 17. It is a moment in which God the Son goes to God the Father and exercises His prayer of dependence upon the Father to resolve to go all the way to the cross and pay the penalty for sinners like me and you. It was a decisive moment that set the trajectory of all of redemptive history. Please turn your Bibles to John 17. The ground upon which we walk right now is holy ground. It is sacred. This is a sacred, solemn moment in all of world history. We will read John chapter 17 in its entirety and then look back at verses 1 through 5. But make no mistake, this is a decisive moment in the history of the world. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You've given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've, which you've given me. I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In this chapter and in this moment in, in history, Jesus prays for himself, Jesus prays for his disciples, and Jesus prays for what will be the church. He, he prays for himself in 1 to 5, he, he prays for his disciples in 6 to 19, and he prays for the world which will become the church in verses 20 through 26. He is acting as a great high priest should act. And he is, he is talking to his father and appealing to his father on behalf of people like me and you. And he is mediating on our part. And I want you to see something. My, my, my aim this morning, church, is to help you see the glory of God in Christ and to enjoy a relationship with your great high priest. That's really my aim. I want you to see the glory of God in Christ, and I want you to enjoy a relationship with your great high priest, Jesus. That is my aim. And so, I want you to look back down at verses 1 to 5, and I know for some of you this may be redundant, but I want us to do something here. I want us to read verses 1 through 5, and in particular the beginning of the prayer, and I want us to read it with a different emphasis each time. So I want, first of all, for you to notice the Father as I read these first few verses. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And you see the Son's focus, the centrality of His focus on the Father right there? Look back down at the text. Check out this emphasis. 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given Him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see how he focuses on himself right there? And finally, let's read it one more time. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There are three points of emphasis we just need to see just in the reading of this prayer. It is that the Son is centrally focused on the Father's glory. And the Son is centrally focused on His own glory. And that glory is wrapped up in both His Dad and Himself. And that we've got to see that this is the heartbeat of Jesus, our great High Priest. It is the Father's glory through the Son's glory. Now before we look at just really the three observations, the, the kind of the three movements of this first part of the prayer, I do want us to make one observation about Jesus at the first point of verse 1. Look at the posture and the direction of Jesus' prayer. Jesus actually lifted up His eyes to heaven. He, he looked upward toward, toward heaven, the place where His Father rules and reigns the universe. I, I just think it's interesting that Jesus did not bow his head. He did not close his eyes. Instead, he lifted up his eyes toward heaven where his father reigns and rules and talked to his father in a relationship. Now, it says that he did so to heaven. We know that God is omnipresent. He's in all places at all times. There's no place on this planet or any other planet where God is not present. I mean, as a matter of fact, He's right here, right now. But there is a real sense in which He is in heaven on His throne surrounded by angels. And this is exactly where Jesus looks to offer His prayer. Now what I want to do right now is I want to walk through this prayer in, the, in kind of the three progressions that he makes. And so let's look down at verse 1 and we see his request for immediate glory. We see his request for immediate glory. He addresses, first of all, God as his Father. Why does he call him Father? Because that's exactly what the first member of the Trinity is to the Son. He is His beloved and eternal Father. Reading through the Gospels this week, it became evident that Jesus and God the Father have a special relationship that no one else does. Listen, listen, to, what, listen to what Jesus said. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And the Father and the Son have a special relationship with one another that we can neither fully understand or fully experience. And not only that, they have a shared glory. In John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, we see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory full of grace and truth. And John says that it was glory as of the only begotten from the Father. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And then we know that they have a shared authority and a special love. Listen to what Jesus says, he says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He addresses him as Father in, a, in an intimate union with one another. And then look at what he says. He says, Father, the hour has come. As we just kind of put on our Bible study glasses where we make observations... Look down at that statement, the hour has come. Not an hour. N not another hour. Not a very important hour. Not a significant hour. But what? The hour. Yes, Carl, the hour. Which is to say, the hour for which I was born. The most important hour in all of redemptive history. The hour in which I put the Father's love for sinners on full display. The hour in which I secure the salvation of every sinner who puts his faith in the triune God. That hour. And then what does he do? He asks for immediate glory. He says, glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Now this verb, glorify, it, it generally means to, to recognize the great worth of something, the great worth of, of somebody, and to ascribe dignity and honor and prestige and worth to that something or to that somebody. When it's spoken of God, the Father, and God the Son, to glorify, listen, means to render visible and glorious the character and attributes of God. That's very significant for you to understand. When Jesus is saying, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, He is saying, render visible and glorious your character and your attributes, O God. That's what he is saying. Publicly magnify the beauty and splendor of your very being. And Jesus asked the Father to glorify him, that is, glorify Jesus, so that Jesus can glorify his Father. Notice this, I only want you to glorify me so that I will then in turn glorify you. This is a demonstration of the humility and the love of the Son for His own Father. If the Father puts the character and attributes of Jesus on full display, then Jesus will, in effect, put the character and the attributes of the Father on full display. 
And church, does anyone know exactly what hour that Jesus is asking for God the Father to glorify Him? What, what event is He specifically referring to? The cross. And you know, like I know, that the world looks at the cross work of Jesus and looks at it as complete folly, as complete foolishness, as a great travesty that occurred to a good man. But Jesus, the one to whom the suffering and the execution occurred, actually calls it glory. So I think we have to ask the question, how in the world is the murder of the Son of God glorifying to God? The answer is that it puts on display the infinite love of God for sinners like you and me and the infinite justice of God to punish sin? That's the basic answer to that question. You see, God cannot, because of His righteous character, because, because of His holiness, because of His integrity, He cannot sweep sin under the rug as if it did not occur, as if it's not a problem, as if it's just something that we can just ignore. God will not ignore sin. He will deal with it fully and finally and eternally because He is a righteous judge. He is not unrighteous. He will not take a bribe. He will not lie. He will not deceive. He will not manipulate. He will deal righteously with sin once and for all. And so His justice is put on display when, when God the Son is persecuted by sinners through the beating and the nails and the, the whip and the crown of thorns over His head as Jesus goes to the top of Golgotha and God the Father pours out His righteous judgment upon sinners like me and you, upon His own beloved Son, what God is doing is demonstrating to all the world that He is a righteous, holy judge who will exercise justice in all the earth. And at the very same time, He is putting on display His infinite love for sinners like me and you. For this is the love of God. 1 John 3.16, 1 John 4.10, that He loved us and He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. You see, His love, His love for us, His pursuit of our highest good is pure and perfect and infinite. There is no length that God would not go in order to rescue us from the judgment that we deserve. There is no humiliation that Jesus was unwilling to go for Him to rescue us from our condemnation. There was no shame. Jesus was unwilling to endure for you and I to experience the dignity of being sons and daughters of the living God. So at the cross, Jesus 
is not experiencing folly. He is experiencing glory because he is putting on display with those arms spread out and those feet nailed naked in front of hundreds of people who are jeering and scoffing and making fun of him. He is glorifying himself so that he can glorify his father because he is showing that God is just and he's loving at the same time. That is how the cross is glorious and how it magnifies the greatness of Almighty God. So when Jesus prays, Lord, Lord, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, He's saying put on display your infinite justice and your infinite love upon sinners. What does He want us to see next? John does... John wants us to see then Jesus' statement that he makes about eternal life. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus just flows right from this desire for glory and glorification to make really two statements about eternal life that, that you and I should, our interest should be highly piqued at this point. And the first thing that Jesus really says here in his statement about eternal life is that eternal life is a sovereign gift. It's a sovereign gift gift. He says, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We see in that statement that that the Father has given full and total authority to the Son. We say it every Sunday at Redeemer Church that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? Jesus has all authority because it has been conveyed by the Father to the Son so that He has total power and total freedom to act and rule over all of the earth. And this is what Jesus says about His authority. He says, you've given me authority to actually give eternal life to all whom you have given, essentially, to me. That's what Jesus says. Now, For some of us, this is a very simple and fundamental truth. For others of us, this may be something that you haven't even wrestled with yet or you're wrestling with now. But the fact of the matter is, is that everyone who makes a decision to follow after Jesus, every person who experiences salvation through faith in Christ, does so because the Father has chosen them to do so, has elected them to do so, and has secured their salvation from the very foundation of the world. And why do I say that? Because Jesus says that you have given me authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Jesus has originally said earlier in the Gospel of John, that I am the good shepherd and that my my sheep know my voice and I, I lead them and I protect them essentially to all whom has been given to me and all whom have been chosen by the Father. Eternal life is a sovereign gift. And what should that do? What should that do? That should not produce haughtiness or arrogance that somehow we are this this. These 
precious people who have um, accomplished something. That's the whole point. Nobody can accomplish eternal life on their own. Nobody can earn it. No one has deserved it. No one has been good enough or acted faithful enough or, 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 or been moral enough to achieve salvation on their own. If it was not a gift from a sovereign God, nobody would ever be saved. And so... The Son says eternal life is a sovereign gift and I'm giving it to everyone that you have chosen. And then he makes the statement, and this is beautiful. He basically says eternal life is a special relationship. Write it down if you're taking notes. Eternal life is a special relationship. He says this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Is eternal life rescue from hell? Absolutely it is. Is eternal life a deliverance from the, the penalty of your sins? Absolutely it is. Is eternal life a, a, a putting up in a place of, of um, prestige and experiencing glory in some fashion because it's conveyed on you from the Son? Absolutely. But at its root, church, at its root and its very heart, eternal life is a relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son. Mark it down. Eternal life is not religion, it is a relationship. And God wants intimacy with you more than He wants ceremony from you. That is significant. Now, J.I. Packer, an incredible writer and theologian, I think J.I. Packer's British. Is he, Phil? Yeah, he's British. He wrote this book, I think, in the 90s. And it is an absolute uh, gold mine, and it's called Knowing God. And I wish I could read to you uh, the entire chapter, um, start, uh, I think it's chapter 3, Knowing and Being Known. But that would just be an audio book rather than preaching, so I'm not going to do that, okay? But I am going to read, I am going to read some, because I want you to tap in to why you were created, why you were regenerated. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that nobody else has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? What are we talking about when we use the phrase knowing God? A special sort of emotion? Shivers down our back? A dreamy, off-the-ground floating feeling? Tingling thrills and exhilarations such as drug takers seek? Or is knowing God a special sort of intellectual experience? Does one hear a voice, see a vision, find strange trains of thought coursing through one's mind? Or what? 
These matters need discussing, especially since according to Scripture, this is a region in which it's easy to be fooled and to think you know God when you don't. We pose the question, then what sort of activity or event is it that can properly be described as knowing God? So then I want, to bear, I want you to bear with me here because I think this is gold. The quality and extent of our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. Point being, have you ever tried to get to know somebody and they wouldn't let you get to know them? Yeah, so, so Packer is saying, for you to really know somebody, they've got to let you in. They've got to let you in. And so he says, it is they, not we, who decide whether we are going to know them or not. Imagine now that we are going to be introduced to someone whom we feel to be above us, whether in rank or intellectual distinction or professional skill or in some other respect. The more conscious we are of our own inferiority, the more we shall feel that our part is simply to attend to this person respectfully and let them take the initiative in the conversation. Surely you've been there, someone of a higher order. You, you feel really reticent to actually like talk to them and know them. All right, well, he said, we would like to get to know this exalted person, but we fully realize that this is a matter for him to decide, not us. If he confines himself to courteous formalities with us, we may be disappointed, but we don't feel able to complain. After all, we had no claim on his friendship. But if instead he starts at once to take us into his confidence and tells us frankly what is in his mind on matters of common concern, and if he goes on to invite us to join him in particular undertakings he has planned and asks us to make ourselves permanently available for this kind of collaboration whenever he needs us, then we shall feel enormously privileged. And it will make a world of difference to our general outlook if life seemed unimportant and dreary before that, it will not seem that way anymore now that the great man has enrolled us among his personal assistants. Here is something to write home about, something to live up to. Now this, as far as it goes, is an illustration of what it means to know God. If you stayed with me, what Packer is trying to say is that when Jeremiah repeats the Lord's words when he says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his wealth. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and righteousness and judgment in all the earth. This is what Jeremiah is saying. And this is what Jesus is essentially saying. God of heaven and earth, the infinite God, the omnipresent, omniscient, omni-everything God who knows all, sees all, is everywhere, pure, perfect, holy, righteous, regal, royal, has said, I want a relationship with you and I'm going to let you know me. I'm going to let you into my life so that you can understand me and enjoy me. This is eternal life. I'm letting you in. So when Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, he is saying something 
earth-shattering. You now can have a relationship with the infinite, holy God of the universe. And Jesus makes that his request, his desire, his prayer, and his statement. He finally, then, back in verses 4 and 5, he makes a request for ultimate glory. So he previously made a request for immediate glory. Now he makes a request for ultimate glory. He essentially says this, I glorified you on earth, now you glorify me in heaven. He's ready to be back by the Father's right hand. He's ready to be surrounded by the, the angels. He's ready to be in complete, 100%, unadulterated, glorified form with His Father, enjoying perfect union with Him. He says, I glorified you on earth. Notice that, he, notice that He actually treats the cross as if it's already accomplished. That's why I say that this is the most defining moment in redemptive history, because now He's looking at the cross as something that has already been accomplished. I've accomplished the work You gave me to do, and so glorify me in Your presence with the glory that I had forever and ever and ever in eternity past. He essentially says, I have fulfilled all of your requests. I have gone on the mission. I've accomplished it. Now I'm ready to be with you again. So he makes a request for immediate glory. He then makes a statement about eternal life. And then he makes a request for ultimate and infinite glory again. And so church, this is the big idea for this section here. This is, if you're taking notes, write it down. If you're not, just soak it in right now. I'll probably say it a couple of times. But Jesus is our great high priest who is supremely committed to two things. He is our great high priest who is supremely committed to two things. The glorification of God and the salvation of sinners. The glorification of the triune God and eternal life for sinners. Same thing. The glorification of God and the salvation of sinners. And we see it in his request for immediate glory, his statement about eternal life, and his request for ultimate glory. So this is what I want to do now. I want us to realize that that this moment can be a definitive moment in your life. It can be a moment that sets the trajectory of your spiritual life. For some of you, you may actually need to get eternal life. You need Jesus to give you eternal life through faith in Him. Others of you who are walking with the Lord and you're loving Him and you're enjoying Him, it could be a definitive moment that you want to decide that I'm going to put a stake in the ground of my life and I'm going to pursue a love relationship with this great God. I'm going to pursue a love relationship with this great Savior. Whatever it is, I want to give you three applications, three instructions right now. And then if you'll pray that this will be a definitive moment in your life. First, prioritize the glory of God and the glorification of God. That's what you need to do. You need to prioritize the glory of God 
and the glorification of God. Jesus prioritized it. We saw it so many times in verses 1 through 5. The Bible prioritizes the glory of God and the glorification of God. I don't want to be redundant here, but Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah 6, the angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Romans 5 and 15 says that Christians rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That we should accept one another for the glory of God. Philippians 2.11 says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says that the holy city Jerusalem in the future age will have the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 in Revelation 21. And so we should prioritize the glory and the glorification of God. And what does that then mean for us? It is for us to reveal the beauty and the greatness and the splendor of God. Um, I don't know if I can do a great job of, of, of saying this, of explaining this, but you know, when you make a decision to cultivate a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus, and then you bear the fruit of that relationship with a conversation with somebody, and you bless them with fruitful words that are kind and patient and generous and helpful, you know what you're doing in a moment like that? You are putting on display the very glory of God. When you sacrifice some of your money in order to help someone who is in need, and you offer over that money to give to that person in need, you are putting on display the very glory of God. When you stand for what is right, instead of cowering down and compromising your integrity, you are putting on display for the church and the world to see the very glory of Almighty God. You get to glorify God in a sense in the way that Jesus got to glorify God because you have the Spirit of Jesus who resides in you. And the one who died and rose again lives in you and wants to demonstrate His glory until you go to heaven. So, prioritize the glory of God and the glorification of God. And make that decision today. The second application and instruction is to be continuously thankful that Jesus is your great high priest. Be continuously thankful that Jesus is your great high priest. We don't really connect with high priests anymore because we didn't live in Old Testament times and we didn't go through all of the ceremony and all of the sacrifices and all of the rituals. And so I don't think that we can appreciate all that it means that Jesus is our high priest. But this is what I know. Apart from the work of Jesus Christ for us on the cross, you and I would be stuck in ritual and ceremony 
and animal sacrifices that have to be made over and over and over. And we would have to trust in or believe in the high priest for us who would make those sacrifices not only for us but also for himself because he's a sinner. And it would be the the blood of bulls and goats and we would make it regularly and annually depending on which sacrifices they were. And that high priest would have to do it perfectly without without a problem or else he would get struck down. And even that, our sin guilt and our punishment still would not be taken away. But now we have a high priest who is perfect, spotless, sinless, stainless, who mediates between us and the righteous God of heaven and earth, and he offers up Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of his spotless, sinless life. And he makes atonement for our sins, as Hebrews says, once and for all. We've got to be thankful for that. Continuously thankful that we have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. Oh, church, let us not dare be a people who are presumptuous in our relationship with the high priest. Finally, the last application for us today is to pursue a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus. Pursue a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus. Pursue a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus. And I really think that, well, number one, that's, eter- that, that's what eternal life is. But we ask, why? How do we do that? And really, it, it's, I want to I simplify it. We have to pray to Him, and we have to listen to Him. We have to talk to Him, and we have to listen to Him. That's the nature of, e- of a relationship. We speak to Him and He listens to us. He speaks to us and we listen to Him. He wants to hear from us. We want to hear from Him. And so, to pursue a vibrant relationship with Jesus is we have to have a a constant open door of communication from us to Him and Him to us. Well, when we pray, we want to... We want to have a holistic prayer life in which we can have a dynamic relationship with Him from from us to Him. Oftentimes when when Christians have prayer lives, it it really is just asking for the same things over and over every day. It's not dynamic, it's very static, it's unchanging. Lord, do this, do that. Please exercise this, please do that for us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Listen, it's great to go to God with our request, but if you want a dynamic relationship with the one who wants a dynamic relationship with you, then you've got to kind of have a more holistic relationship with Him in your conversation with Him, in your prayers to Him. It involves adoration and praise. It involves confession of sin and confession of the gospel. It involves thanking Him for very specific blessings that He's given to you, both spiritual and physical and material, and it involves supplication, asking Him to do great and glorious and wonderful things in your life and in the church and in the world. And at the very same time, It is having this open lines of communication from Him, from heaven to us through His Word. Because from Genesis to Revelation, God is saying here, 
I want a relationship with you. And I have secured 66 books and over a thousand pages of my words to you. That's how much I want a vibrant relationship with you. And so how do we do that? We hear the word. We read the word. We study the Word, we meditate on the Word, we memorize the Word, and as we do those things, as we hear and read and study and meditate and memorize, we are soaking in this holy God's desire to have a vibrant relationship with us. I want to give one plain application right now. School is about to start. It doesn't matter whether it's public school, private school, home school. School's about to start for both students and teachers and now is the time to pursue a relationship with Jesus like today is a great day to plan your relationship with Jesus because this is what I know you will not spontaneously stumble into a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus you will prioritize it and you will pursue it and I just want to encourage you to do that today or tomorrow before school starts so that you can talk to him and so that you can listen to him so that he can talk to you and that he can listen to you and experience exactly what Jesus says this is eternal life that they may know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent let's pray together father we are thankful that you so desire a relationship with us you have essentially moved heaven and earth to have a relationship with us. You have put your righteousness on display on one hand and your love on display on the other hand. And we right now, as your chosen, sacrificed for people, we offer thanksgiving and praise that you knew no bounds to bring us into a relationship with yourself. Praise be to your name. Help us to worship you now as we celebrate communion and sing songs of praise to you. Amen.